You're listening to Advancing Our Church. Welcome to Advancing Our Church, a Changing Our World podcast about Catholic stewardship, leadership, and advancement. I'm Jim Friend. Well, welcome back, and thanks for downloading our podcast today. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday and that you had a little time away from the office to enjoy your family and your friends and just reflect on the many gifts that God has given to you. I know for us in the Friend Home, we had a great weekend. We got our Christmas tree, we fried our turkey, we had some great food and just some great time together, and I think that's really what this season is all about. We're now moving into the biggest philanthropic season of the year. And uh, as we drop this podcast, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday. And I know that many of you are going to hang your shingle out and hope to capture some new donors, maybe recapture some previous donors. And I wish you all the best of luck, and I hope that you're very successful. For some who may be on the fence, maybe you're thinking, I'm not sure if I should commit to Giving Tuesday tomorrow. Well, You know, many organizations around the country have moved to having their own day of giving, and maybe that's the better solution for you. There's just a whole lot of traffic on social media on Giving Tuesday. And many organizations choose a day during the year that is significant for them. Maybe it is kind of a wrap-up towards the end of your fiscal year. And maybe there's a a feast day. Maybe there's a founder's day. Maybe there's just a day that is uh, significant for you that you call your donors together to celebrate your institution. So think about that. There are other solutions besides Giving Tuesday. Again, I hope all of you who are out on Giving Tuesday trying to recapture or capture new donors, I hope you're very successful. Also, uh, just a note, we are in this season of Advent, and many of us who work in this field are extremely busy this time of year, not just professionally, but of course there's family obligations, there's parties, there's having family over, there's the stress of travel. Make sure that you find some time for yourself this Advent season to reflect on the true meaning of Christmas. Maybe that means just getting back to to daily Mass. Maybe that means just taking a couple minutes each day and reflecting on the daily scriptures. But whatever it is, stay in tune with the theme of the season, with the reason for the season. And I wish you all the best of luck in this coming month. Well, with that said, let's get back to work. This week, I had the opportunity to visit the Central Association of the Miraculous Medal, which is located in the suburbs of Philadelphia. It was established in 1915 by a Vincentian priest, Father Joseph Scully, and his mission was to spread devotion to Mary by encouraging devotion to her under the title of Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal. And that mission is not only alive today, but it has continued to expand. And so today I talk with Mary Jo Timlin Hogue, who is the very first lay president and chief executive officer. Mary Jo brings her tremendous experience from the for-profit world to impact and expand this important ministry. We also talk with Sheila McGurl. Sheila is the senior director of institutional advancement, and we talk about engagement and philanthropy at the Shrine. And finally, I'm joined again by Changing Our World's very own Caitlin McTighe, who recently completed a scope of work for Changing Our World at the Shrine. And so, without further ado, here is our conversation. Well, we're here at the Central Association of the Miraculous Medal, and I'm joined by Mary Jo Timlin Hogue, who is the CEO, and Sheila McGurl, who is the Senior Director of Institutional Advancement. 
And I'm joined by Caitlin McTighe, who is a Senior Director for Changing Our World. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. So glad to be here at the Shrine and the Miraculous Medal. I've heard so much about it and looking forward to finding out more about it today. Terrific. So Mary Jo, why don't we start, tell us a little bit about um, the Vincentians. They've been here for 170 years and they founded the Shrine. So should we start at the beginning? Sure. I think that's a good place to start. Um, our Vincentians actually landed... Um, from Europe uh, onto the shores of the U.S. well before uh, the Vincentians started the Eastern Province. But since we sit in the Eastern Province, I'm going to focus my energy there. They actually made it into Philadelphia in 1849 um, at the request of then Bishop Kendrick of Philadelphia, who actually reached out to them to say, can you help us train our young priests? We've got this new seminary, and we have the men who want to be trained, but we don't have the senior experienced priests to train them. And so they said, sure, we'll come. They were in uh, Missouri at the time, and they came back to Philadelphia, and then they helped to set up the seminary and, and train the seminarians. At the same time, they established themselves in this section of Germantown in Philadelphia. It's a small little section within the city of Philadelphia. And they developed their own seminary, and they grew their seminarians there. And they established roots. They established the first Catholic church in Germantown, St. Vincent's Parish, which is still active today. Um, and then they grew to two other... Um, um, parishes that they grew, mostly based on the immigrants that were there. So you had the Irish church, you had the Italian church, and, and they were all going pretty well until just recently. Um, we had four parishes at one point, and we're down to the original one now, St. Vincent's Parish. Um, as they grew the seminary, they also grew their love for the miraculous medal. And I think that's where the story um, continues for the Vincentians. They grew up and down the eastern province on their mission to help the poor and the underserved um, of Christ, and that is their mission and has been Vincent de Paul's mission. But we also established this miraculous metal shrine, which was part of the um, Chapel of the Immaculate Conception, and that was started by Father Skelly of Incension, who had a huge devotion to her Blessed Mother and felt that she um, aided him as he was charged as a very young priest to raise funds to build a bigger seminary in um, New Jersey for the Vincentians. And because of um, his handwritten campaign to everyone he knew, he put a miraculous medal into each one of those, um, and he was able in very short fashion, you know, back in 1912, 1915, handwritten letters, he was able to raise the funds within two years to build the seminary. He felt it was a direct response from Our Lady saying, I will support you in this. And so he built the shrine in dedication to Our Lady of the Miraculous Medal. And that's where the story really takes off for Philadelphia. Um, it's been here for 140 years, the Chapel of the Immaculate Conception, although the shrine was actually built in 1927, and the novena started in 1930. But what's interesting about this is that, you know, we built the shrine to the Immaculate Conception and people came. We would have upwards of 15,000 people each Monday that would come through the shrine. That's the Philadelphia story. But what this has done is got a worldwide recognition of the Miraculous Metal Novena, which started here and then went to churches and parishes and homes around the world. And that's the power of the Miraculous Metal, and that's the power of Our Lady. So I think that's, the, I, for me, that's the big story of what the shrine is here and the comfort that Our Lady brings. And you, uh, I'm sure that you have, you receive visitors uh, all, all throughout the year. And what, how many visitors do you get here in a, in a given year? So, you know, our numbers have been um, smaller than, say, you know, back in the 1940s and 50s during the war. 
um, time years, and even the 50s and the 60s. But we um, average probably about 30,000 visitors a year, and that goes from our novenas um, every Monday. But then we get people from around the world, around the country, who just want to come to the shrine and want to have uh, say some prayers to Our Lady. We still have our local influence where people still come um, and want to see Our Lady. Um, my special time in the shrine, frankly, mm -hmm. is any day but Monday, because <laughs> you can have your really quiet time with her in this beautiful chapel. And, you know, because it is so quiet, it's almost like you're having a private meeting with Our Lady, and it, I think it sets it apart, makes it really special. Wouldn't you agree, Sheila? I would agree, yes. Yeah. yeah. And how has the uh, how has it evolved over the years? I mean, I'm sure that uh, services have grown and the uh, the community involvement has grown. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think that um, the community remains strong and stable. You have your faithful followers. We had large numbers during the 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s. The numbers started to dwindle down, but I think we're starting to see a resurgence again in the last couple of years, and that's in large part because we are promoting Our Lady more. Um, maybe some of that has been backpedaled a wee bit um, in the past few years, but we're promoting her. But we're also making it a community here at the Miraculous Medal. So we talk about Our Lady and the services, but we also talk about Vincent de Paul and his care for the poor. Um, and we work really hard to put activities and pilgrimages and classroom activities that focus on Our Lady and the story of the Miraculous Medal, but also what it means to serve uh, Christ through the poor. And I think we're starting to get some traction around there, especially with our young adults. Um, we're trying to bring the grade school kids and the high schoolers in to learn about Vincent, to learn about Our Lady, to make sure that you always have Our Lady close to you as you grow through life and she will always protect you. Um, we also bring in our college-age students and our, our post-grads, our young adults and young families, to talk about um, Our Lady and what she means for them in their life um, and, their, and their family time. Um, and we're putting lots of programs around that people are getting interested in they're saying, come back to the shrine. We're really trying to make it a more diverse community as far as programs and subjects that focus on the poor and of Our Lady. And I think maybe that's what makes us a little more different today than say we were back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. We still have a faith-filled group of people. We still have the prayers that go with it, but we are also um, trying to tackle some of the current topics in the world today um, and how Our Lady can help with that. Hmm. And so remind people that she is still here and she can still help with that. What are some of those current topics that you guys are trying to tackle right now? So, um, especially with um, our young adults, we've tackled the homelessness um, um, issue here in Philadelphia because it's a it's a Philadelphia focus, opioids, any of the drug addiction um, type of issues, depression and suicide, where we have some open communication with our young adults if they want to share that. Um, we try and tackle that, and the other topic is really that this um, the subject of of young adults, children are kind of moving away from the church. And, and we're really trying to work with them and to understand why they're moving away from the church and then focus on um, what Our Lady had said. If you come through me, I take it to my son, and then you come back to my son. And so we try and introduce them a different way of getting to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, through his mother, Mary. And that's a topic that I don't know is always um, discussed in schools mm -hmm. and in families, and so we try and resurrect that again. Yeah. So one way that I know the followers and the, the shrine has grown has been by Facebook. Um, you have nearly 2 million followers on Facebook, which is miraculous. Nearly 3 million. 
Wow. Give um, us credit for that extra million. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to leave that That's a whole out. million. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, clearly the, the message is resonating still. Um, and, you know, talk to me a little bit about the role of technology and how that has changed. You know, I got the notification for the Psalm Novena is going to be live streamed, and I was excited about that. But I'd love to hear, you know, how that has changed recently. Yeah, th- thanks for uh, bringing that up. Um, when I joined the organization and I kind of assessed how did we communicate uh, the Miraculous Metal Shrine and what we do at the shrine, I recognized pretty pretty early on that it was uh, hadn't changed ever. And so the way we did it was through our monthly mailings, um, direct mail campaigns that would go out. And then four times a year we had a little small magazine that went out that was... Um, you know, tried to catch people up on the rays and the graces of the Blessed Mother as well as the Vincentians. But that was it. That's all we did. And so um, pretty quickly um, I assessed that we needed to change our communication style, and so we focused on a few things. I'm a big storyteller, and as the Irish are, we can really pull (laughs) a story and we can just draw it out forever. Keep me talking long enough, I'll give you a story. But... um, Stories are important, and that's really the earliest way people communicated in this world. It's all about the story. And I said, we really need to capture the stories of the shrine. We need to capture the stories of the Vincentians, and how are we going to tell it? And it has to be told in such a way that today's world will be drawn in. And so we looked at a few ways of communicating. Um, One was around this whole video series. So we took a year that we captured the stories of the Vincentians up and down the Eastern Province, the stories of the Miraculous Metal Shrine, and we put it into very short um, two, three-minute videos that we posted on websites. Um, We took a look at our two websites. We've got a Vincentian website, and we've got a Miraculous Metal website, and we said, how can we make these better and more robust, make them more contemporary so people will be pulled in? And so we you know, reworked the Vincentian website, and our new CAM website will be coming out January 1, and we put the videos on that. And then we said, but people don't always go to websites, so how else can we communicate with them? So we said email is a way that we can communicate. We can blast out to them any kind of messages that we have, such as um, any programs. Our Catholic Business Network meeting is coming up. If we have a young adult program that's coming out, up, we're trying to take the news to the people in the way they receive it today. And I think that has been the biggest change and the biggest leap for the Miraculous Metal Shrine and, frankly, for the Vincentians in their 170 years. Mm -hmm. It was taking a look at how do people communicate today and what tools do they use to communicate and do we want to get into that. And we looked at that. We looked at Facebook, Instagram, um, our website, and tried to push it out those ways. Sheila, um, tell us a little bit about that Catholic Business Network. We were talking a little bit about that before the show began. Sure. Well... You know, it goes back to growing the numbers of people that interact with us at the Shrine. And we were trying to find unique ways to invite people in. It's all about the invitation. Sure. So we thought we would reach out to the business community. We had an opportunity there. There were two groups that were meeting in Philadelphia that were no longer meeting. And we thought, let's give them a home. Mm -hmm. So with some cooperation from the people that were involved with those, we were able to come up with some lists and our own database. And we invited people from the area to come and network. We give them a takeaway as far as a speaker. We tried to give them a business takeaway 
at, at one of the meetings, and then the next meeting will probably be followed up with a spiritual takeaway. Mm-hmm. But it's inviting people into the shrine, and that engagement, you just can't beat it. And the, the crowd gets bigger and bigger each time. Yeah. The feedback is outstanding. And one particular, the first time that we brought them over to the shrine, we have a museum here in our building, but we brought them over to the shrine, and I noticed as I greeted people, I welcomed them. I said the first uh, segment will be networking, but why don't you go up and check out our shrine? And people were coming down so filled with emotion. I think Mary Jo would agree that at the end of that Catholic Business Network, we were receiving lots of gratitude um, from people, lots of thank yous for um, some introducing them to the shrine, others inviting them back. So it's just another one of those ways to bring people together in community and to bring them back to the shrine and introduce the shrine to them in many cases. Well, whether it's Facebook or whether it's this business association, it's all about engagement. And Sheila, you, you lead the development efforts. Tell us a little bit about that. I, we were talking before, you said you actually, you get donations from all over the world, right? Yes. Through this direct yes. mail. Tell us a little bit about your program. Well, it's, it's a diverse community that we engage here at the shrine. Um, I would say, it, as Mary Jo shared, we relied uh, mostly on direct mail. Mm. But now we're we're bolstering our direct mail because we realize that we can't let it go away. Right. But we're trying to find other ways to invite people in. It's all about invitations. So um, not too long ago, uh, prior to Mary and jo- Joe and I being here, um, the Indian community was engaged and they built a shrine to Our Lady of Valencani. And that was our first step toward realizing that there are communities out there that want to engage with the Blessed Mother. And so uh, shortly after that, we had the uh, Filipino community reach out to us. And that gave us a great opportunity for stewardship and bringing people together again. And we joined forces with the Filipino community and built Our Lady of Fiat Shrine in our lower shrine. Um, Filipinos in America today. So they wanted to, they're so grateful for Mary's yes and the life that they received here in the United States. But they also wanted to say thank you to Mary and build this beautiful shrine. That was a beautiful collaboration. And now, uh, as Mary Jo and I are getting out in the community more, we had a request from the Irish community. Mm. And uh, that, that's wonderful for Mary Jo and I because we have a great affinity for our <laughs> Irish culture. <laughs> but the Irish community is engaged with us, and we are actually have a meeting tomorrow to look at the plans, and we're going to be building a fundraising campaign with, with that group. So it's, I think it's all about the initiatives right now, as far as development is concerned, is stewarding the donors that we have and um, branching out with invitation to people from all over to engage with us and learn about us. That's beautiful. And, and uh, Sheila, I know you come from a great uh, background in Catholic developments and philanthropy <laughs> from the South, South Jersey area. And Mary Jo, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you wind up being CEO here? <laughs> how did I wind up? That being wasn't a loaded question, but I hope go. that didn't. <laughs> but <laughs> tell us about. God bless us. How did you land here? Uh, that's what I heard with that question. So I heard it was a tornado involved. <laughs> Somebody <laughs> said that the tornado hit um, the, uh, what do they say, Germantown or something like that. And it's Mary Jo. So I don't think I <laughs> had a straight path yeah. um, here at all. I, I think my career has always been like a river um, that's been pretty winding. I actually started my career in healthcare. Hmm. Um, I was a bedside nurse. I specialized in uh, trauma critical care. Um, and I did that for 19 years in hospital administration for 19 years at the bedside. And I really then took a leap into the business world, always focused on healthcare. Um, and went to lots of different companies. I was at GE and General Motors and what's now known today as WebMD. At the time, it was known as Medscape and mm-hmm. got involved in the technology piece of it. Um, 
And then, you know, my last uh, run in healthcare before I came here was at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I was senior director of uh, business strategy, business development. And, um, you know, I had a, a bit of a career change because I had a personal issue that happened in life. And I made a very conscious decision that um, I wanted to try and do something different. And I really wanted to try and give back. I had worked in corporate healthcare, corporate America for a lot of years. And while it was a great and I enjoyed it. I just felt there was something in me that said, I've got to give back in a different way. And this um, role was something that I found, um, believe it or not, you know, for all of my experience, I found it online. Mm. And um, when I found out where it was, I said, oh, I know this place. Let me just kind of throw my hat in the ring. And the rest is history. I mean, truly, this is how I found it. I will say to you that um, nothing is coincidental in life. I think that um, my career path, although it was very varied and was very wide, um, it prepared me for taking this role on. And I think that um, Mary definitely had a hand in me landing here. Absolutely 100% sure of that. And I don't know that I would have consciously thought that until I sat in the seat here and some of the things that have popped up and I'm saying, yeah, there's no way I could have planned this one. She definitely had a role in this. So that's how I landed here. I'm very much a business background, um, very much a for-profit, although uh, several of the hospitals I work for, like Children's Hospital in Philadelphia, is a not-for-profit. But this is a very much, I call it a grassroots not-for-profit, so a very different experience. And how uh, that, you know, I've, I've heard that a similar story with other folks who were in the for-profit world and then they get into education or they do uh, non-profit work. How do you feel that your for-profit uh, career helped you, help prepare you for this new role? So I think for me, um, right off the bat, you know, when you go into healthcare, you're trained in a very specific way. You take a look at data, you take a look at the patient, you size things up. So very early on in my young career as a nurse, I was always data-driven and I could look and assess things and information. You go into the business world, you're looking at data, you're taking a look at the landscape and you're saying, what does the data um, tell you? When I came into the not-for-profit world, specifically here, I said, show me the data. And they went, uh, data what data. So I had a really op great opportunity with this low-hanging fruit to say, let's put some structure around the data. Right. So, you know, going in and capturing data and taking a look at that very quickly gave me an idea of where do we need to focus, the communication component, where we have a little bit of cracks that we maybe need to fill in. So let's address the communication piece of it. How do we reach out to other people and how do we put some structure around it? So while I was being very sensitive that I had a 170-year-old culture here, and, um, oh, by the way, I'm a lay person. And, oh, by the way, I'm the first female. Being, I had to be very sensitive to that. I also said there was an opportunity to put some real business structure around here. And I think that served me well. And I think it's serving the organization well today. Taking a look at how we do things in a very logical way. Uh, not just jumping on things. Show me what the data is showing. How do we go and tweak it? How do we improve it? But also being conscious that... Not all of this here is about the data. Mm -hmm. Much like in healthcare, it's a science and it's an art as well. And I would say this is a science and it's an art as well. So I know that there are many things, and Sheila could share stories in her time here, that we say, holy crow, I never would have thought this would have happened. And we think that we've got some other hands that are helping us move this thing forward. So I think, you know, the structure, the structure around the business and the business logic and the data component has helped me mm -hmm. um, pretty well. I've had a couple of incidents occur here, um, some that were trickier than others that 
you know, it would come across my desk and I would say, I know exactly how to address this. And had I not had that experience um, in corporate America, I don't know that I would have been prepared to address some of the things. So I was well suited to be here in this role at this time. Beautiful story. Sheila, has that been your experience as well? Absolutely. As you know, Jim, I had 14 years working for church. Mm -hmm. And uh, people didn't look, if you said the word business model, they would get annoyed with you. We're church, we're ministry, we're, you know, grassroots. But when Mary Jo came on and put some structure around it and the ability to tell a story, you know how important that is to the advancement uh, piece of things, it really, it didn't make the job easier, but it gave us tools to be able to go out and try to improve things, you know. So I'm, I'm grateful for that perspective and I'm learning a lot from the business aspect. You know, I had a little bit of a business background, but uh, Mary Jo is pulling us up the ranks and broadening our view on things and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Raising all boats. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's like, tremendous. When yeah. the tide rises, all the ships rise with it. That's right. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> So um, Mary Jo mentioned science and art, which I think is a great segue because I know you have beautiful artwork here um, and there's a museum and I'm just wondering if there's any pieces or a little bit of history that you can share with us on that. Yeah, this is a little um, silent jewel here in Philadelphia and clearly um, even amongst the Vincentians of the Eastern Province. But this is an art museum that is, um, we, I have been told with... Um, highest confidence that this is the world's largest privately owned Marion Cristo Art Museum. So the art museum is only of Mary and her son. There are a few pieces um, in the corner that are all around St. Catherine Laboret when she um, uh, became a saint and we had uh, the mass. So we've got some pieces around that, but it's really Mary and her son. And we've got pieces in there that go from the 12th century that go and all the way up to current time because I just received a beautiful modern piece from Delaware, the parishes in Delaware that's focused on Mary. Um, and the pieces are either originals or they are first-class replicas that would be seen in art museums around the world. And they're oil, they're oil on canvas, they're oil on wood, there's gilding in there. They're absolutely gorgeous pieces. And these were all owned by Father Skelly. And they were either he collected them or they were given to him as gifts. And so these are one-of-a-kind pieces that you're not really going to see. Some of them you'll see. Some, you know, if you go up to the art museum, you'd say, well, that looks familiar. You know, I've seen that somewhere. Maybe not in an art museum, but you've seen it in an art book. But um, they're pieces that tell a story. And that's what I love about this art museum. You could just take one piece off of the wall. doesn't matter what time period, because the time periods go from Gothic all the way up to Rococo. So we've got them every every range but you can sit down and you can take one piece of art and you could do the obvious and say okay it's Mary and Jesus but then you can look at the time period and you can say well why did that artist paint it in this way what was going on during that time period what were they thinking about what was the medium that they used this one piece we have from the 12th century is on a hunk of wood from the 12th century that's still gorgeous and intact and you would think it would maybe would decay and whatnot it's this piece that's I don't know maybe about 18 inches by 12 inches and it's gilded and she's absolutely gorgeous on it and she's holding her son and it tells a story of that time period during the 12th century wood was probably the easiest piece to start to paint on and then why would they do it from there you can tell that story about the world and what the world was thinking about at that time. But then you can also tell 
the story about the Blessed Mother and you can see what's on her face and how is she thinking and how is she looking at that wee baby or her older son and what do you think Mary was thinking about? What do you think her son was saying to her in that picture? And you can pull people in and really just give them, you could spend one day on one piece of art up there and give them a full rich experience about the time and about Our Lady and about Our Lord. It's a jewel. It's a precious jewel that we have here um, and, we, and we keep it that way. I think we use it for very special occasions. How do you, you mentioned that a parish in Delaware gave you, the, mm. how do you, are you still acquiring artwork then from, and how we're, does that happen? We're not actively acquiring it because yeah. this was Father Skelly's private collection. So mm -hmm. I think he was clearly an art lover and clearly loved the Blessed Mother. And I think that was his drive. You sure. know, he wanted a collection around her. But we have enough folks who are starting to know us now that are saying, mm, you know, I've got this piece of art I'd like to be able to donate to you. Will you accept it? And the first one came from Father Gabaji, who um, actually had it made for his parish in um, Delaware. And he had a large piece made, and then he commissioned a smaller piece so we could just have it in our art museum and have something more contemporary around Our Lady. So we're not actively going, but people mm -hmm. kind of know us, and they're saying, you know, there are pieces would you want to have in the art museum. And if it's Marion and they want to be able to, you know, display it, well, we're happy to take that. Wonderful. Um, I understand you have kind of a new, is it a newer movement towards uh, engaging young adults? And you tell me a little bit about that. We do have a new, a newer movement engaging adults. Um, we are really trying to put programs and service projects together that will pull young adults back to the shrine. Um, and we've gotten some really great interest, especially around the service components. Um, and as we know today, our our generation of millennials really want to do service types of um, um, oriented work. And so we try to put those things together that are holy hours and then there's a service component around it. We've done it about five times over the last year and we've had some really good reception from the young adults for that with that as well. I think we're also talking about doing some other um, types of outreach to them where we're going out to them either on their college campuses or going to their young adult programs as well. While we love to have everybody come back to the shrine, we are good to take the message out and about. We've had some really great reception, um, especially around Our Lady. Um, especially around Our Lady, which I think I was really, really pleased with. This is the story I wanted to get back out to people to say, don't forget our Blessed Mother. She's very powerful, and she's got the right ear of her son. Trust me, she's a mother, so she's able to talk to her son. And that was the message we wanted to get out. And so we've had that that good reception around it. Um, we're going to have the great sleep out that's going to be at the uh, across the street at the seminary on December 7th. Am I given that's the right date? I think it's the 7th. So we're going to support homelessness across the world. Um, we're going have a, a good contingency of young adults there and then again we do our happy hour holy hour so we try and get these like-minded young um, adults together to be able to be you know interact with each other in a way that they feel they can connect with people which sometimes you can't um, you know if you're out in the in the secular world sometimes you don't you can't find that niche so we've done that as well I would like to share with you one project that goes across all ages from the very young to the very old, and I call it, it's our Labouret project. So what we have done is we've hired a professional actress full-time, and she is playing the role of St. Catherine Labouret. And she is in her period habit of when she was a novice, and she saw our Blessed Lady. And she tells the story of when she saw our Blessed Lady, and she tells the story of the apparitions, and she tells the story of herself a little bit as a young girl and what got her to the apparitions. And we kicked this off last week. 
And our first uh, group was a group of 120 young ladies from St. Hubert's High School here in Philadelphia. And Catherine was there in her habit, and she has a very good French accent, so she's very realistic. And those young women, if you could see the pictures, those young women were just drawn into the story. And it was meaningful for them because it was a first-person rendition of something that happened. And so it wasn't just me, say, reading off a paper. It was Catherine herself talking about her interactions with the Blessed Mother. And those girls just loved it. They were hysterical because at the end, they said, can we have some selfies? So we've got like the students and we have selfies of St. Catherine. And so we knew it went really, really well. And then we did it again uh, three days later. And it was for um, a small group of nursing home residents with, um, I think it was the gray nuns. A couple of the gray nuns were there as well. Really well received from that age period as well to the point where you're thinking, and I laugh about this. We're going to have people say, wait, I thought St. Catherine was dead because she's so realistic. She's you get, good. She is so darn good. Yeah. You get pulled into the story. But um, one of the nuns actually came up at the end and cried and said it was unbelievable. Like it was, it was, she was proud of the story that was told, but also of the rendition and how realistic it was. St. Catherine will be here at the shrine, but she's also going to go out to the schools and she's going to travel. Because I think that if you have someone telling the story first person, it's a very different story. And so far, we've had really great reception around that one. But that'll that'll go across all age groups. The little kids in particular are going to love it. Mm. The little ones will love it for sure. So, you know, and, and our goal is to eventually, hopefully by spring or early fall, we will have a first person play where she will tell the story of Catherine Labore and the Daughters of Charity. Um, and care for the poor and her um, and her love for the Blessed Mother. So she'll have her novice habit on, and then she'll have her full cornet um, habit as well. So and, and she's just a dynamo, really. If you have an opportunity to come and see it, she'll be at the shrine five days a week, starting in January, <laughs> um, chatting with anybody who comes into the shrine, anybody mm. who wants a tour, and then we'll have some real special, special events, like when she tells her full story. Well, what a great resource, especially for the Catholic schools oh, and the parishes wow. in the Philadelphia Archdiocese yeah. to send her out. And, yeah. and I'm sure even beyond South Jersey, I think Lehigh Valley, yeah. people will really enjoy this. Yeah. It's like chatting with a saint, you mm -hmm. know, because... Um, Really, you do. You, you, you get goosebumps when you're around. Um, Victoria is her name. When Victoria does Catherine, you get goosebumps um, around how she provides the story. Absolutely. Yeah. I was in on the auditioning, and um, first time out of the gate, she brought tears to our eyes. Oh, she did, I didn't felt she? like I was in the presence of St. Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> How do you audition an actress to do a scene? I just think that's fascinating. So whoever makes us cry. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, it's you know, you're really funny. Like, how do you play a saint? Right. But there was about seven of us, six of us that interviewed, one of which was a daughter of charity. So we yeah. had Sister Marge Clifford in there. And um, Sister Marge was sitting next to me. And, you know, Kat, she, Victoria was nervous, as were all the actresses. They were sure. nervous, and they had to get into their piece. And then um, she just went into a zone. Victoria just went into a zone where she turned into Catherine pretty darn quickly, and I knew it was good when Sister Marge was leaning across the table and was looking at her, because I thought, if anybody's the expert, it's the daughter of charity there, right? <laughs> um, but she was, from the very beginning, from the very beginning, when she walked out of the room, we all went, yep, she's ours. She's, yeah. We had three more to do, but she's ours. We knew that was it. I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, she was just moved. 
She was just moved. And I don't think that she ever expected this in her career for sure. Um, but she just was, I don't know, I can't even explain it. She was brilliant. She's very talented. In fact, she did her own research and wrote her own script. It's, it's unbelievable yeah. the way she captured that message. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Caitlin, you've spent some time here at the, at the Shrine. Tell us a little bit about your experience of working here. Yeah, I just remember my first time coming here, a sense of peace that came over me. And I don't know if it was because I was coming from New York City and it's just anything <laughs> that's not New York City is very peaceful. But I definitely noticed that. I noticed, um, you know, we met with uh, some of the Vincentians when we were first here and um, obviously with Mary Jo and Sheila and just the passion for our Blessed Mother was palpable. I mean, in every conversation and every activity, um, that's the driving force behind, you know, what everyone is doing here at the Shrine, and it's beautiful to see that. I also had the pleasure of going to um, their first gala, the Hearts on Fire gala. Yeah, in, I wanted to ask you about that. <laughs> in October, and it was um, just a miraculous event, for lack of a better word, um, celebrating 170 years of the Vincentians in, in the Eastern province. And um, yeah, and, and speaking of, there was I was very moved by there was an art piece that was commissioned for the gala that was then donated to another parish. Um, so I'd love to just hear a little bit more about that and your experience kind of leading up to and during the event as well. Yeah, that was... Um an interesting um, piece of work that was done. So we were um, making a video of the 170 years of the Vincentians of the Eastern Province. And, you know, as you're capturing all this information and you're interviewing all these people for the video, there was some discussion that we needed to make this a little bit more vibrant. What we, what could we do? And so there's a local artist in Philadelphia and um, Forgive me, his name escapes me now. I really should get you that information. But Mm -hmm. um, he does this interactive art, as Mm. it's called. And he came and he met with us. And he said, what do you envision for the the piece of of art? And we said, well, you know, it's Vincent de Paul. It's really why we're celebrating this. What can it be? And so he made this massive outline of Vincent de Paul's uh, face, um, of one of his younger years, uh, faces. Mm -hmm. And then he said, what we do, what I do is, um, he does very bright, vibrant artwork. He brings the paint, all the colors he believes would work well in the piece. And then he tells you to go and bring people in that would be, that you'd want to actually paint this picture. And so we pull people from St. Vincent's across the street in the seminary, from CAM, from um, DePaul um, School, which is right down the road, from the Daughters of Charity, from the Vincentian priests themselves. And we all had an opportunity to go up and paint some piece of Vincent. And I got his eyes because I always get pulled into his eyes. So I claimed his eyes pretty early and I said, let me paint his eyes. Um, (laughs) So I got to do that. But every one of us had about 10 or 15 minutes on this massive piece of art where we actually painted. The kids were a hoot. Um, And we actually captured it on video too as they were painting it. And you could see their faces and how thoughtful they were around this piece and how should it be? And is it just the right color? Is this expression correct? But what that piece of art shows in the video is the diversity of the Vincentians, the vibrancy of the Vincentians. Yes, they're 170 years old, but they're still relevant today, and they'll go on for another 170, and God willing, more than that years. Um, And it showed that we could all work together regardless of where we came. And it turned out to be this incredibly great piece of work 
that everybody was clamoring for. And so we did um, donate this uh, artwork to St. Vincent de Paul Parish, which is also celebrating 170 years because they started at the same time um, with the Vincentians. And so that's displayed. And that's a vibrant, very diverse, vibrant um, parish. So it's a perfect piece of art for them. But it is a, a really cool-looking piece. If you go onto our website and you take a look at the 170 years, you'll see you'll see the art, and you'll see us painting it. We've got some pieces of, of folks painting it in there as well. Sounds like the Vincentian charism is still very much alive and vibrant today in your ministry. Can you tell me a little Absolutely. bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, Saint Vincent, uh, his whole charism was built on building a community that serves. And so, um, it, you know, the, the 170th gala was so special to me because it was such a clear picture of that charism at work. You know, um, it was a reunion of sorts and there were people from all um, Vincentian neighborhoods, so to speak, that come together to make one uh, community. So we had, you know, the Vincentian ministries face-to-face and indwelling and CAM, um, the universities that the um, Vincentians care for, um, all came together and they, in a celebration that really offered reunion um, and beauty and an extension and, rev- and a life, breathed life into the, the work that we're continuing on uh, going forward. Um, the one theme that comes to mind when I think the people that I interacted with, like one of our honorees was Brother Al, and we also honored the Raskob uh, Family Foundation for their work um, administering to the poor and serving the church throughout the world. Um, and it's that zeal, that Vincentian charism of zeal comes through and um, pretty much encompasses everything that we tried to bring forth uh, since Mary Jo came on board and gave us that clear vision for what we want to accomplish in the future. There are a wonderful bunch of, of uh, gentlemen to be among, ladies and gentlemen involved in the Vincentian family. Mm-hmm. Um, we recently went to Niagara University for the President's Dinner, and you think we're special and we can we see it here, we see that Vincentian um, charism at work every day, but it carries through, and you know we were walking through that President's Gala and the the kindness and the care for the poor and the service among the students was unbelievable. It's a, it's a very special place to be. It's a very special place to interact with. Yeah, I think you're right. Especially um, being up in Niagara University, the president, Father James Marr, um, he was telling us, telling the group that um, about Niagara University and the initiatives that the city of Niagara have in place today, which is, you know, it's a pretty economically challenged area. And there are 14 initiatives that the government, the city government has in place to care for the people there and the poor, 10 of which the Vincentians and Niagara University are very involved in. That tells you a story. You know, they don't come and they don't just touch surface. They go deep, they go wide, and they become part of the community because they have the love for people, the love for the underserved, the love for the poor, the love for immigrants. They're a social justice group as well. Um, and that that kind of stuck out. And I said, yeah, that's a Vincentian. You can see them. They're just not there doing a Sunday Mass. They're saying, no, we're involved in the lives of the people 
regardless of what background you have, regardless of what religious background you have. It's about the person. And that was Vincent de Paul. It's about the person. It's about seeing Christ in the face of the poor and all people. And that that statistic that Father Moore um, spoke about on Friday, I said, oh my goodness, yeah, yeah, that tells a story. Mm-hmm. That's not just unique to Niagara University. Our St. John's group does the same thing, as do the parishes that are up in Long Island, um, in Brooklyn, um, down south, in the Carolinas, in Panama as well. And then we've got them in Alabama. These uh, men, these priests and brothers, they come and they become part of the community, and they're there to serve. And they say that, we are there to serve. Um, and they're just terrific. It's just terrific. It's a great charism. It's a great charism. I think the other thing about the Vincentians, and it was clear, and even in Vincent's time, is that it's not just about the religious. They believe very strongly that the laity needs to be pulled in. Their role is to go in and to help, but to also train and help support the laity so they can keep it moving forward. Um, and I think you see that in every aspect of, of a Vincentian. The Vincentian family, we call it, mm-hmm. because it is religious and it is lay people, and it's a large family in 156 countries around the world um, and in all different in all different groups. The St. Vincent de Paul Society, de Paul International, DePaul USA. We've got our daughters of charities, our sisters of charities, the ladies of charity. So we've got a pretty big Vincentian family around the world that serves the poor. Well, clearly, Mary Jo, with your role uh, being new, then uh, a new lay person in this role, uh, they are empowering the laity, and this is a, <laughs> is a is a new chapter, right, for uh, for the miraculous metal shrine. What are you? Uh, clearly, it's a very vibrant place uh, with many folks involved around the country. Um, what are some of your challenges? How can how can folks help? So I think that's an excellent question. How can folks help? I think first and foremost, keep us in your prayers mm. because this is a, a ministry that we want to continue to grow around the world. So I think keep us in your prayers. Pray for us every day that we're doing the right things. We're making the right decisions. I think that their support of prayers, I think their support of time, talent, and treasure is always a help for us because that helps us to keep um, the ministry and the mission moving forward. Um, I think if you've got suggestions for me, you email me because my email address is right on our website. Any, we take any and all suggestions to help us think differently, uh, which is why we've got our young adult programs and we've got CBN and we've Absolutely. got the New York Tenors coming. We're really trying to be very varied in our approach. Um, but for me, it's about the prayers because I do believe that having those prayers will be able to conquer all. And engage with us. You know, we live stream our novena every Monday um, on our Facebook stream. And we can you can access that on our website. Our website is miraculousmetal.org. Mary Jo mentioned that, um, and we talked today about how we have a very vibrant sacramental life and we offer those, offer those service components. And we talked about invitation. And, and uh, one of the things Mary Jo mentioned is we have the New York Tenors coming on December 11th. Mm. The New York Tenors, um, it's self-explanatory. They're a musical group, but they are of diverse backgrounds. We have um, Daniel Rodriguez um, represents the Latino community. Andy Cooney represents the Irish community. And Chris Macchio represents the Italian community. And they come together. They're um, good Christian gentlemen. And they come together, and they're going to offer a beautiful concert at our Miraculous Metal Shrine. So I would say the biggest thing is engage with us. If you're local, come to the concert. Check out our website. Check out our Facebook page. Engage with us with our um, 
novena, our live streaming of the novena. And um, like Mary just said, please share your comments with us, you know, um, and reach out to any one of us. One of the things I love about our staff is they're very engaging. They're here because they love it here. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we see that when the young adults come too. I have a background in um, youth and young adult ministry. That's where I started working for church. And I love what we're doing here because it's engaging them with whatever issue they might have to discuss, with their spiritual life, and with their service. And we have to engage them. And I think the church could really learn from the programming that we have here in the Miraculous Metal Shrine. We have to meet these young people where they are. They're not our future church. They are the young church of today. And they're going to keep this faith and this devotion going for a long time coming. So please engage with us so that we can keep these programs uh, continuing and uh, strengthen them for the future. Um, I was, I don't know if you caught any of uh, the bishops' uh, big uh, conference last week. And uh, Bishop Robert Barron was on. And they've been tackling the challenge of evangelization. That's the committee that he chairs. And right out of the gate, one of his first talking points were, you know, the way to engage young people today is through service. Absolutely. Through engagement. And it seems as though you are hitting that right on the head here. Yeah. They, they love it. You know, um, young people today pray differently than, say, when I was growing up. You know, we've, we had a pretty structure around how we did our religious prayer. Young people today um, have structure but in their way and what suits them. And there's nothing wrong with that. So you, you reach out to them and you say, okay, how do you pray? These young people pray through service. Mm -hmm. That's their prayer. And they want to give back to mankind and they people kind and they want to help um, their brothers and sisters. And that's how they pray. And I say, that's how we go and support them because through that, they do see Christ. They do see Christ. They absolutely do. And that you can see them change when they're out and they're doing their service. You can see them physically change. You can see the way they change when they talk with each other and when they talk with whoever they're working with in that service project. And I think it's a beautiful thing to see. I think the other thing is we need to be open to the types of services that they want to do. And so where, you know, we had early on said, okay, we'll set up like setting like food bags up and things like that. While they thought that was okay... They said, we need to do more. I don't just want to put the bags together. I want to go and meet the people that we're giving the bags to. I want to engage because that's another type of service. You know, it's working with the souls and making the lonely less lonely and hearing their story and then bringing their stories to these people. So they, that's a different way of them praying. Yes, it's about bringing things the food bags to them, but how do we engage the person in the spirit as well? And that's a form of prayer. And I think that's where we're saying, okay, what can we do? Let's get that together. So we're open to those suggestions, however they want to do it. They also are interesting in that they do have this piece of very formal prayer where they like to do the holy hour. And the way that they pray the holy hour, again, is very different than I was taught to pray in holy hour. But they want that quiet meditation, and they want that music. And they don't so much want to be spoken at, they want to be spoken to and with, but that they want that quiet, faithful peaceful time where they can just connect with our Lord. And that, I don't, I think I didn't expect that. I think that was a surprise for me when we started this program, a pleasant surprise, a very pleasant surprise. They're private in the way they pray, but they're okay showing it very public as well, but they are very private in the way they want to pray. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. 
Getting back to what Mary Jo said, they're very, very involved in that. They want to be involved in that people-to-people -people connection. Mm -hmm. So one of the service projects that, that uh, Carolina Suarez, yeah. our director, came up with was um, Shine at the Shrine, where ah, they actually prepare okay. meals for the homebound elderly, but they bring the meals to them and they engage with them. And right. that people-to-people -people connection is really what they want. They want to make a difference. You know, not just with their muscle, but with their, um, you know, emotional and prayer life yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. It's the whole package. Well, ladies, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and hearing more about the shrine. Caitlin, do you have any closing thoughts? Or No, I just, again, prayers for the shrine and prayers for the two of you doing wonderful work here. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. For everything. Thank you thank very you. much. And engage with us. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we'll put the, uh, we'll put your contact information and links to your website and your bios and all that That'd be on, great. on our website. And again, I'm just so grateful for your time today. Oh no, thank you. For the opportunity love, to visit the shrine. We yeah. love to talk about the shrine, don't we? We could go on yes. for hours. You don't want to hear us. We can tell a story. <laughs> We're two Irish people. We can tell a story. So. <laughs> thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Mary Jo and Sheila for being on the show this week. If you'd like more information about the Miraculous Metal Association and Shrine, you'll find links on our show notes and on our website at advancingourchurch.com. Thank you again, Mary Jo and Sheila, for the great opportunity, the great visit, the, the tour that we had, uh, and for your important leadership on this mission. Uh, and for those of you who have seen our social media, I put some pictures up on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram, but those pictures do not do it justice. You've got to go down uh, to Germantown, that's one of the suburbs of Philadelphia, and visit the shrine in person. Thanks so much. Well, that's our show this week, but before we sign off, is your parish thinking about a capital campaign? Well, I have the webinar for you. So next week, December the 11th at 2 p.m. Eastern, we'll be holding a webinar called Getting Ready for a Parish Capital Campaign. And I've assembled a panel of experts who will discuss the do's and don'ts. We'll also be available to answer your questions. So go to changingourworld.com, click on Thought Leadership, and click on Getting Ready for a Parish Capital Campaign. I think you'll find this webinar very helpful. Again, it's free, and bring a friend. Many thanks to the Changing Our World podcast team and to Pottery Studios for their support of our show. So, hey, if you're looking for a way to say thank you to Advancing Our Church this year, do me a quick favor and leave us a rating on iTunes. That small show of support goes a long way in spreading the word about our show. And thank you so much to all those who retweet and repost our podcast throughout the week on social media. We appreciate everyone's support. If you'd like more information about our show, please visit us at advancingourchurch.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Advancing Our Church is a production of Changing Our World, a fundraising and social impact consulting firm that has been advising both nonprofits and corporations for the past 20 years. For more information, please visit us at changingourworld.com. Well, that's it for me, everybody. Have a great week. Take care, and God bless.